Because there were other boats that were following him. If you read the passage, you can go up there and read it. Uh, that disciples got Jesus into the boat and they left, but there were boats following him. And so they were going to head across the lake, head across the sea to go to the other side with him. And so it wasn't just one boat. And that might be what's in your head, but that's not what is borne out in the reading. And so uh, I encourage you to read through that and read around the verse, before the verse and after the verse. While I'm talking tonight, get a little bit of context in that, because uh, I think it's kind of interesting that when you put it into that kind of a context, that it is the disciples and Jesus, but it's also a whole bunch of people that had also gotten in the boats that were following them. And so they were leading this pack of boats. They were leading this regatta across the lake. And so there's a little bit more going on here than just responsibility for one boat. A little bit more going on here than just responsibility for one group. But there are a bunch of people. And in the same way, and I want you to think about Jesus with the people that had come to hear him speak, after they had been there for a while, he felt a certain responsibility to feed them. You remember this? Uh, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. It happened twice in the ministry of Jesus where there were people that were there to, to hear him speak and he felt compelled at least by compassion, to take care of them. And so he did. Miraculously took care of them. He fed them. Two different large groups of people that he fed miraculously so that they would not be hungry and they would be taken care of. And so there was a certain responsibility, is all I'm trying to say, is that these people had come. These people had heard him. They were getting in the boat to head to the other side of the sea. They are heading to the other side of the lake. And, and these people were following them in these boats. And so there was a connection. He's the reason they were on the, the sea. He's the reason they were on that lake that night as it was. And so there were, I'm sure the disciples had caught on to that, I believe. Jesus had certainly displayed that. And so this was something that was a little bit larger than just one boat with 12 guys in it and Jesus. There was something bigger going on here. And so... Uh, I, I leave that with you, but I, I just want you to uh, think about that. Now, the Bible describes that there's a fierce storm that came up suddenly. And this fierce storm kicked up waves so hard that they were lapping over the sides of the boat and filling the boat with water. And if you've ever been in a boat that's being swamped like that, that especially in the middle of the water, that can be really scary. Uh, I've been in a couple boats that, and and not necessarily in this particular situation, but I've been in a couple boats in my life that are being swamped. Uh, I've been in the ocean in a, a little um, a little motorboat with my grandfather that was being swamped one time off the coast of South Carolina, and I've also been on a few lakes up in the Adirondacks where a wind will come up really fast. Uh, and that happens in the mountains a lot where weather changes and the wind will come up really fast and the waves will start lapping over the sides of the canoe or whatever the shallow boat that I'd be in. And that can be a little bit disconcerting, especially when you're not near any kind of a shore. Uh, that's happened to me a few times in June and that's happened to me uh, once uh, with a friend of mine. And it also happened to us up in the Thousand Islands one time where it was me and June and Garrett was about this tall. <laughs> He was a baby, sort of, and uh, he couldn't stand up on his own yet. And so June was in the front of the boat. It was a little bitty motorboat. We're on St. Lawrence River. I was in the back, 
and she's just holding him up. And all of a sudden, the wind came up as we were up there. And it's a river, so you can see both sides. It's a little less disconcerting, but we need to get the boat back, right? And there's just waves coming into the boat, and the boat's filled with water. And I'll tell you, the one person in the boat that wasn't worried, guess who? Garrett, because he's a little kid, right? And, and he just holding him up front, and he's just jumping up and down. He thought it was great. You know, the boat's like, yeah, you know, hitting waves, trying to get to the side. And uh, he didn't have a care in the world. He thought it was great. It was just me and June that were like, hey, you know, you know, all right. Anyway, so a little bit disconcerting. Water is coming into the boat and uh, Jesus is sleeping in the story. It wasn't that big a boat. He wasn't like in the stateroom sleeping. OK, it was it's not he's just in the back of the boat with his head laying down. And I'm sure the boat's getting tossed and everything. He's just sleeping in the back. And so he didn't wake up. Uh, disciples had to go, if you read the story, uh, specifically, the disciples had to go wake him up. He was sleeping that good. I mean, in the middle of all that that was going on, he was sleeping really good. And so the disciples woke him up, and he rebuked the wind, and he silenced the waves. That's what the Bible says. He rebuked the wind, and he silenced the waves. And then he said what he said, what we just read. So I caught you up. You can read it yourself, but I'll just try to catch up to give you an idea of uh, of what we're looking at here. And he asked a couple things of the disciples, which I, I thought was kind of interesting. Before I get into that, I was reading an account. Uh, there was a guy that had done uh, some study in this area and had gone uh, to this particular place and had uh, set up camp. And he was describing, and the reason I read it was because it's a description of how these storms come up. And so he was describing when he was there camping, uh, the tents, and they would try to hold the tents down and, and try to, you know, make sure they were nice and sturdy and everything, but the wind would come up so suddenly, uh, they would lift the tents right up off the ground. They couldn't keep them in the ground. Now that's how strong the winds were that would go through there. And so from, from what he was saying, the lake that they're talking about here, it lies 600 feet below sea level. So the lake is really low. It's 600 feet below the ocean. They're not that far from the ocean. And so because it's so, uh, it's so far down, it's also in the midst of a bunch of canyons that have been formed by water formations like rivers, and they've just carved their way through. And so what's happened is, is that these rivers that have carved their way through these canyons have left ravines and, and have left these channels uh, through the rock, these gorges through the rock that the wind, the prevailing winds will funnel through. And as they funnel through these ravines and they funnel through all this rock, they get really strong and they dump out, these winds dump out right at the bottom, right at the... The, the very end of this lake. And so what happens is, it could be a completely calm night or a completely calm day, but then all of a sudden, that wind, whatever that prevailing wind, will catch through those ravines and catch through those gorges and will just hit that lake and will just stir up a storm out of nowhere. I mean, just out of nowhere. And, that, and that's what happened here. And that's the story, because we don't have that background, and that's why he was there to study it. You understand what I'm saying? 
he's trying to figure out the stories and figure out the things that have happened. Well, that was his account of the, what he saw. That's what he experienced. And that's what, through the study of why those kind of violent winds and that, those kind of violent waves will actually just come up out of nowhere. And so I thought that was kind of interesting because uh, it, we tend to think about things like, all right, well, you know, should they have been more prepared? No. Well, could they have seen this coming? No. Did they know this was going to happen? No. It was just something that would happen every now and then. And it caught them. And, and anybody that does any kind, any kind of stuff outside, sometimes you just get caught. I mean, that's just the way it is. And I've done a lot of hiking. I've done a lot of canoeing. I've done a lot of boating. And sometimes you just get caught. That's the way it is. So they got caught. There they were. And so Jesus was with them. All right, so here, here's a couple things I want to look at. The first question that Jesus asked, which I think is interesting to me, is why? He asked the disciples, not about the storm, and not about the winds, and not about the waves, and not about the, the, the water that was coming in the boat, why they didn't have on their life preservers. He didn't ask them those kind of questions, right? But he asked them a good question. He said, why? And that word means, how has this come to pass? How has this come to pass? Why? And this is the question. Why are you afraid? So that was the first thing he asked them. Why? Why are you afraid? Which I think uh, there's an obvious answer to that. Why do we get afraid? What's the obvious answer to that? Uh, Fear of what? Well, they're in the middle of a storm and about to get swamped. What's the known? They're probably in trouble, right? Yeah. But they don't know what's going to happen, so that's unknown. They can't control the storm. They can't control the situation, so they don't know what's going on there. And they're afraid they're going to die. Okay? So they're in danger. So I don't, I don't think Jesus is asking. That's not the question Jesus is asking. Do you follow me? Like, uh, it'd be like Jesus asking them a question about something they already knew. Like, well, what color's the sky, boys? You know, it's blue. Okay, good job. He wasn't asking them that. He didn't care, you know, it wasn't saying, why are you afraid? In other words, I know you're in a perilous situation. That's not the issue. The issue wasn't whether or not the storm was going on. The issue wasn't whether or not the wind was high. The issue wasn't whether or not the, sw- the, the boat was getting filled with water, because it was. I mean, all those things were happening. Jesus knew all those things were happening. He wanted to know why they were afraid. In other words, what kind of fear is he talking about? Well, this is what I want to look at. What's he really asking them? It's a real question here. It's not, you know, why you're afraid. Well, yeah, he knows that. That's not the issue. The real issue of it is, though, what's he talking about? What kind of fear is he talking about? What kind of fear is he looking at? What kind of fear does he want the answer to? Why? Why? How has this come to pass? In other words, they had seen certain things with Jesus, right? All the time they had been with him. I mean, we're in Mark 4. They'd been with him for at least three chapters. All right, And, and Mark doesn't really tell us every detail of the other Gospels. So, I mean, in other Gospels, they'd been with him a lot longer than that. But... In Mark, they'd been with him, and they'd seen him do stuff. They'd seen him heal the sick. They had seen him 
uh, you know, they've seen him just do miraculous stuff. They deliver people from demons. They had seen uh, people that had physical problems completely, utterly be solved. I mean, all these things they had seen. They heard him teach. They heard him preach. They had received supernatural provision. All these things had happened. And, and they had all of these opportunities, if they chose to, to believe. They could believe. They could make a decision of faith. They had enough information and they've had enough opportunities in their life to make a decision in their life with Jesus, to make a decision of faith. They could have done that. Well, they didn't do that. So that's one part of what I think he's really asking them. Because they were faced with a situation that was outside of their control. They were faced with a situation that surprised them. They were faced with a situation that was dangerous. They were faced with a situation that was beyond their ability to really affect any. I mean, all those things are true. But they had the opportunity in the midst of that, an opportunity in recognition of the fact that they were facing all of those things, and all of those things were possibly the things that were happening around them. They had an opportunity to think, yeah, but Jesus is with us. And Jesus has done all these miraculous things. Jesus has, has, has done things that nobody can do. There's been supernatural things that have taken place at the hands of Jesus. And they could have reflected on that. They could have thought about that. But they didn't. They just didn't. And, and to me, there's a real question that's being asked here of Jesus. It isn't what's your initial reaction? That's not the real question. The real question is, why do you persist in it? Why do you persist? So, in other words, it's not why were you initially afraid. Well, that's obvious. Dangerous situation. He gave us that kind of fear in us to, to keep us alive. Right? I'm not, I'm not naysaying that. There's certain times where, you know, you, you want to get me to jump, I'll jump, alright? There's certain things that will make me jump. Because there, there's a certain reactions in us and there's certain things that, that, that trigger in us, and that's why God's given us those things to keep us alive. Alright, no, no argument. I'm not arguing about that. I'm not even talking about that. I don't think Jesus is talking about that. What I think Jesus is talking about, though, why persist in it? Why do we live in a state of fear? Why are we going to persist in a fear that we don't have to live in? Because we've had enough experiences... In our time with Jesus, the disciples had had enough experiences in their time with Jesus that had enough experiences that they didn't have to continue to live in fear. And that's the fear I think he's talking about. Why? How has it come to pass you're still afraid? How? How? And that's what he really wanted to know, as far as I'm concerned. And, and so, I think, number one, stop beating yourself up over your initial reaction to things. Because we all have initial reactions to things that may be good, bad, or indifferent. I don't know. And you've got to stop beating yourself up over the initial reaction. But you need to be aware of what you're persisting in. That's more important. It's more important to understand what you have made the decision to persist in. Because that's something different than a reaction. 
Reaction's a reaction. Some people are more jumpy than others. But we all, all, after that point, will make a decision how we're going to proceed. And I believe that our faith needs to lead us into a different decision. That's what I believe. Because I believe what you see happening here with Jesus is Him challenging His disciples. I mean, you can look at this and say, well, He's pretty heartless about this, right? I mean, they're all scared to death. And they're all, you know, afraid because they're on the ocean and all this other stuff or on the sea. And He came down pretty hard on them, right? After they woke Him up. Well, I don't think that's what He was talking about, though. What He really wanted to know is, why aren't you making a different decision now? And to me, that's a great question. Because if you think about the burden of living in fear your whole life, what that feels like, carrying around that kind of fear, that kind of anxiety. And if you've lived in any level of anxiety, you know what I'm talking about, it will kill you eventually. Anxiety is bad for you. Bad for me. It's bad for your heart. It's bad for your body systems. It's bad for your body's ability to repair itself. It's bad for your sleep. It's bad for everything. It's bad for your thinking. It's bad for your cognitive abilities. It's just bad. And some of you are following what I'm saying. Alright? You know, if you're a guy, anxiety will steal your biceps. And if, and if you're a girl, anxiety will make your butt flat. Okay? That's, that's what I'm going to tell you. Alright. Oh, okay. Now I've hit home. Okay. Alright. Alright. Whoa. Whoa. Alright. Alright. So we're serious now. But anxiety is no way to live, and that's what I'm trying to say. Anxiety is no way to live. But you have to make a decision to keep living in anxiety. You gotta look at what's going on around you, and, and instead of living like an animal, because you're not an animal like that, okay? I'm not gonna argue with you about, well, humans are technically animals. Well, you're self-aware and you can think, okay? So, what I'm trying to tell you is, you do not have to live by your instincts. You can make a decision. You can make a decision. Now, I had a dog that was unafraid of just about everything, except for lightning. Lightning scared my dog. Now, my dog would run up to another dog and just go to town. Didn't care. That dog could be twice as big as him. He did not care. He was unafraid. He's unafraid of people. He's unafraid of animals. He's unafraid of just about everything else, but not lightning. All right? But you know what? I couldn't talk him out of it. You know why? Because he's a dog. That's right. And he lived by instinct. And no matter what I did to try to help that dog, be like, it's okay, buddy. I talked to him in calm tones. You know what? Hey, it's all right. He didn't care. All right? He wanted to hear it. Because every time it flashed outside and the thunder rolled, he was nervous Nelly. And he was panting all over the place. And, and, and it was just, it was a mess. It was a mess. 
And it was so funny to see such a contrast. You got this dog that's fearless, but gets overtaken by thunder and lightning. And there's no reason with that because he's an animal. You're not an animal. You're not an animal. You do not have to live by your instincts. You can make a different decision. And that's why I believe Jesus came off a little bit hard on these guys. Because he's trying to tell them something here. That they're afraid. All right, you're afraid. This, the wind, it started up. You got gale force winds starting up. You know, a violent sudden coming in through those canyons and coming in through those ravines. And that wind is stirred up that lake and you got, you got waves crashing. Okay, you're afraid. I get it. You don't have to live that way. You see, that initial reaction is, okay, yeah, all right, all right, all right. But you know what? We got a guy with us that, man, that, this guy, this guy can, can heal people. I mean, blind people can see and deaf people can hear and people who can't speak can speak and people who can't walk can walk. We got a guy in here that's proven himself to, to take care of us. We got a guy on this boat that loves us, that cares for us. And I want you to think about Jesus. And I want you to think about your relationship with Him in the ways that He's taken care of you. Think about Jesus in the ways that He's healed people that you've known or that you've seen or that you've experienced. Yeah. He loves you. And He wants to take care of you. You don't have to live in terror. You don't have to live in anxiety. Because He cares for you. And you can make a different decision. You look around, you take a breath, and you make a decision. Alright? And sometimes you just have to do that. Especially when you got things crowding in on you, or you think like, oh, the sky is falling, or whatever is going on in your life. I mean, I have no idea what's going on in your life. I'm just saying, the sky is falling. Alright, well, you know what you need to do? Take a breath. And make a different decision. And, and I know I sound like Bob Newhart, right? In his psychological advice book called Stop It. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's a, he's a comedian. That's a joke. But you understand what I'm saying? I'm not trying to be Bob Newhart. Stop it. All I'm trying to say is, is that we have the opportunity to make a different decision. And we can train ourselves to do that. We can. That we can come to a place in our life where we train ourselves to do it. You know how I know that? Because they train, you get people that uh, are in the military. They have to train these guys how to make better decisions in crisis situations. And they literally train them how to do it. You can be trained how to do that. We can all be trained how to do that. We can allow the Holy Spirit to teach us. We can allow for opportunities in our life where we recognize we're in some kind of a weird anxiety situation to take a breath and make a different decision. We can do that. We can force that on our lives to happen because we need to because it's the right thing and it's the good thing and it's the thing that's going to make a difference in our lives. And so we can put ourselves in a position to see something like that happen. He asked him another question. The first question was, why? 
right? Which I thought was a great question. Why? And what's the answer to that? Why are they still afraid? Do you know why they're still afraid? Because they hadn't made a different decision yet. They were still reacting. They were reacting like animals. And, and I, I know that's offensive to some of you, but I really want you to think about that next time you're reacting like an animal. That you don't have to react like an animal. You don't have to continue on in that mindset. You don't have to continue on in that place where you're just living off of instinct. We have something greater than just our instinct. We have Jesus. We have the Creator. We have the Ruler. We have one who has all authority. All authority has been given Him in heaven and on earth. He is in command of the elements. And interestingly, that authority he shares with us. And so not, not only do we know somebody with authority, not only does that somebody live within us and is with us and abides with us, but he also shares that authority with us. And so we have these connections, multiple points of contact, multiple points of connection with Jesus and his authority in our lives. That's what we have. It's what you have is what I have. And so it may take a, a, a conscious effort for us to take a breath and then make a different decision. To take a breath and recognize how good Jesus is. To take a breath and remember how much He loves us. To take a breath and remember the great and awesome things that He's done in our life. To take a breath and really take into account the authority that we have seen displayed around us. Take a breath and make a different decision. We have that opportunity. So the second question he asked is this. So the first question, well, why? Well, because you're living like an animal and you haven't taken the time to make a different decision. Second question he asked is this. Says, do you still, do you still have no faith? That's the second question he asked. Why are you afraid? Second question, do you still have no faith? And, you know, you think to yourself, well, the word no, I mean, that's kind of a strong word, right? Yeah, yeah. You can take it up with Jesus when you get to heaven. That's up to you, all right? It is a strong word. But I want you to hear it as a strong word. I want you to understand it as a strong word. And and understand him saying to them, you have no faith in this present exercise of faith. Okay? That's what he's telling them. They're crying like babies in a boat because a storm came up. They're afraid for their lives. In that present exercise of faith where they could have taken a breath and made a different decision. They didn't do that, and they were exercising no faith in that exercise of faith. Zero. How you know that? Well, faith dispels fear, but only in proportion to its strength. Does that make sense to everybody? Faith dispels fear, but only in proportion to its strength. How much fear, therefore, were they dispelling in Jesus' presence? None, because they had zero <laughs> faith. So you can't 
you can't you can't dispel fear without faith. So they weren't dispelling any fear, and so they were displaying no faith. They weren't taking the time to reflect, as I was saying before, reflect on what Jesus had done in their in their midst. But not only in their midst, as I was saying before, but what had Jesus done for them personally? And so, instead of recounting stories about Jesus, what did Jesus, in reflecting on, this is important for us to do sometimes, to reflect on, well, what has Jesus done for me? Well, lots. Lots. And I need to be able to call on that. I need to be able to call on times that Jesus has kept me safe, personally. Especially if I'm in a situation where I feel unsafe. And you'd be able to call on times Jesus has provided for me. Especially in times where I'm in a situation where I feel vulnerable that way or I don't feel like I'm being provided for. I need to be able to call upon specific instances in my life where Jesus has comforted me, where I am discomforted and I'm feeling discomforted. I need to be able to call on times that Jesus has has done whatever it is in my life. And you think about that for a second. What situations are you going to face that are going to cause fear in your life and anxiety like that? Well, those are the very things that you need to have ready. That's your arsenal. All right? That's your arsenal. Are those things you have personally received from Jesus that He's done for you that you can call on when you're faced with circumstances in your life? Like I said, these guys... And not only seen Jesus do the miraculous, but they had been the recipient of some of the miraculous. They had been a part of some of that miraculous. And so they could personally call upon, each of them could personally call upon things that Jesus had said and done to them, with them, that would have helped them in order to take a breath and make a different decision in that moment. We need that. You need that. I need that. We need to remember those times. You know, Patrick was talking on, on Sunday and he was talking about silly things that God might have us do in order to be healed. And he brought up Naaman. And Naaman, the Syrian, is a great example of that because as he was describing in the account, uh, Naaman had heard, or the, Naaman's the king of Syria had heard that there was a prophet in Israel that healed people. And his beloved servant Naaman had leprosy. And so he would do anything for his servant to be healed. So he wrote letters and he sent him to the king of Israel and the king of Israel then sent him off to Elisha and he went to Elisha. So all of this trouble had been taken for Naaman the prophet to be healed. All of that. And and so he sends him to, to Elisha. Elisha didn't bother him coming out. Now Naaman's an important guy. And he's an important guy. And so he, I'm sure he was offended by the fact that Elisha didn't even come out of the house. Elisha didn't come out of the house. Elisha didn't speak directly to him. Elisha didn't, didn't come out and lay hands on him. Elisha didn't do the healing dance. Elisha didn't do anything. He just gave him these instructions. Go down to the Jordan River. Wash yourself in the river. You'll be cleansing your leprosy. That's it. And so 
And, and Elisha's, from his perspective, I mean, Naaman showed up to be healed. Elisha told him exactly what he needed to do to be healed. And that was it. Now, Naaman was the guy with the horrible disease. Naaman was the guy that was unclean. Naaman was the guy whose skin was rotten off. Naaman was the guy who had the funny dead skin smell going on in his life. Naaman was that guy. He had all those things working against him. Elisha was, uh, and, and it was just a prophet, and so he knew, and he was a powerful prophet of the day, and so he told him exactly what to do. Naaman asked him for help. He gave him help. That was it in the story. Naaman got offended by that because it wasn't what he thought it was going to be. Naaman got offended by that because he didn't get the proper respect that he thought he deserved. Naaman was offended by that because him going down the dirty old Jordan River to wash. Naaman was offended by that because all those reasons Naaman was offended. To the point he wasn't going to go down there and even give it a shot. Because it seemed silly to him. Yeah. Yeah. But... Sometimes that's how God does things. And we got to remind ourselves. So I was reminded of a story. You guys have heard this, most of you. But when I was uh, 10 years old, I stuck a pencil in my eye. In my, it was my right eye. It's a pencil. I was flipping them off a table, and one of them just came straight up into my eye. I know, brilliant move. It, and it stuck into my eye to the point it punctured my eyeball, and my eyeball bled. It was punctured and scarred. So I got thrown into the back of a car, taken to the hospital, thrown into an ambulance, taken to a bigger hospital where I spent three weeks. Right? Then I had to wear an eye patch for almost nine months over that eye. You know, they fixed me up and then had to wear an eye patch. And so I was still going to school. And until that point in my life, I had 20-20 vision or better. I had really good vision. But over a course of time with that eye patch on and being in school having to read the board and all that kind of stuff, my left eye got weaker and weaker because I was straining it because I uh, didn't have both my eyes. So my left eye got weaker and weaker after a certain number of months. I'd have to, I kept having to go back to the ophthalmologist. I mean, he'd put me in front of that machine with that god-awful bright light Look at the red light. I hate you. Okay. But uh, but anyway, so it healed eventually, but there was a scar over right where I looked, right where I can look out. There was a scar there. And, uh, and so when they took off the patch, they tested my eyesight, it was 2,400. Had degraded in nine months. Yeah. My grandmother, who uh Christian, my great-grandmother, Christian, grandfather was a Christian, they wrote off, because you had to write letters back then. I don't know if you guys know what I'm talking about. Snail mail? Anybody? Yeah? You had to have a pen and a piece of paper. They, sent, they put a stamp on an envelope and mailed it to Oral Roberts. You know who Oral Roberts is? He's a healing evangelist. He founded a university in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They wrote to him to have my eyeballs sent to the tower of prayer he had built on his campus. Now, I don't even know much about Oral Roberts. All right, just telling you I don't. 
Uh, but they, they sent it off and had people at church praying, people praying for me. Well, over time, uh, my eyes started to heal uh, and, and get better. I still had to wear glasses, but they were healing up. Well, I was sitting in front of the television one night, and there was a guy on, and I wasn't a Christian, but there was a guy on TV that I used to watch sometimes. He was on on Sunday nights, and his name was Ernest Angley, and he was a traveling evangelist. Now, I've heard really horrible things about Ernest Angley, so I'm not endorsing Ernest Angley. I'm just telling you this is what happened. So he had a TV show. And on the TV show, and I heard stories about this guy. He had tractor trailers. He'd come into town for revival crusades and stuff. And he had tractor trailers like the circus coming to town when this guy had come to town. And he wore a bad toupee and a white three-piece suit. I mean, yeah. So he's like, if you look up, like gaudy evangelist in the dictionary, there's a picture of Ernest Angley in there, all right? And so he, he had this really weird accent. And he would speak in this accent, and he would apply syllables to words that had more syllables to the words than they needed. And he was classic. The guy was super classic. And I would watch this thing, and I would laugh. Like, I just thought it was the funniest thing, because he'd call people up, and he'd be, like, yelling at them, you know, you know like, telling them to repeat words. And they'd say, what? He'd, like, say dog, you know, or something, you know. And, and it just made me laugh every time I watch it. Well, he at one point, and I'd been watching it for a while, and at one point, one time I was watching it, and he's like, all right, all you need healing, come on up to your TV. Right? And he held his hand out toward the camera, right? Toward the TV. And as I was sitting there, I was thought to myself, you know what? I got nothing to lose. So I put my head up against the TV, right? And Ernest Angley prayed over some generic prayer for healing and stuff. And I tell you, I went to sleep that night. I woke up the next morning and my eyes were crusted shut. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that where your eyes crust shut. They were crusted shut to the point I couldn't open them. And so I had to like, I, I had to like pick the crust off my eyeballs just to open one of them than the other. And I, I finally went to the bathroom and got some hot water on them and stuff. Well, my eyes were healed to, I believe it was 2030 or 2035. To the point, I, was, I don't know how old I was at that time, young teens. And I've never had to wear glasses again for a driver's license test, ever. Right? And, and you want to talk about something silly? That was silly. Okay? And I would never tell somebody to do that. I would never recommend anybody to do that. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm not saying anything about it. And are you, Andy, you're saying that works? I'm like, no, I'm not saying that works. I'm saying it did work. That's all I'm telling you. In that moment, that worked. And I'm always reminded of that. And this is what came to mind. Patrick's talking about Naaman. Whenever I hear Naaman and I hear you know, how he thought that was so silly, it always brings that to mind. But that's my story. And there are times when I'm <clears throat> that I've had where I've been on the road, I've been on a mission trip, I've been out doing something, and I really feel like God wants me to do something really silly. You know who I think of? Ernest Angley. And I think of the silly moment that happened to me right there. 
And I'm reminded of something I've never forgotten. I got nothing to lose. Nothing. And more times than not, when I, when I connect my story to whatever moment I'm in, something good happens. Because I can make a better decision that way. So I can only encourage you to get a hold of your stories. To get a hold of the accounts of stuff that have happened in your life. The accounts of things that God has done. So that when you're faced in those moments of anxiety, in those moments of fear, you take your breath, you remember who you're with and who's with you, you make a different decision. You make a different decision in your present exercise of your faith. You reflect on what Jesus has done for you and you question the present moment in light of that. And it's important that you question the present moment in light of what Jesus has done for you. Is it the end of the world? Nope. Nope. It's not the end of the world. Because Jesus has seen us through things that are likely worse than that. Jesus has comforted us when likely we've felt worse than we feel in whatever moment we find ourselves in. Jesus has provided for us, likely, in moments where we've been in greater desperation than we are in that moment. Jesus has, has come through when it looked like there was absolutely no hope and nothing could possibly happen in more desperate times than probably what we're facing right now. And it's okay to question the present moment in light of what we've experienced before with Him. And that's really what He was calling on them to do. And what Jesus was implying to His disciples here, and, and I think more than implying, because I'm implying it to you, but I'm more than implying it to you, what I believe he strongly implies to his disciples is that they already had good grounds for believing something better. And I'm going to tell you, you have good grounds for believing something better too. Wherever you find yourself, whatever you see things. You think about the idea of the fear that's described here. Because they make a statement to Jesus, like, don't you care that we're dying? Did you read that in there? Yeah. See, that specific fear is that fear that, well, it's too late. It's too late. That it's past hope and that we're perishing. And that's never true. And that's what he wanted them to know. It's just not true. It's just not true. And that specific fear that he's addressing here is never true. There's always hope. It's never too late. He can always intervene. Always. Just like he has before. 
I'm going to take a few moments and give you a chance to respond. Uh, I just believe God is is speaking some some specific kind of faith into us tonight. A faith that I believe we have. We have good grounds for believing. And I believe that's what Jesus is telling us through this passage. We have good grounds for believing. But I think we need to kind of restock our arsenal a little bit and what we're keeping in mind and what we're keeping in our, our heart. And let's keep those kind of things in our heart. Let's keep those kind of things in our mind. Because, I mean, the whole world is just full of anxiety. We don't need to produce that kind of drama. Alright? That kind of drama just comes along. And the real question is, is that when that comes along, what's our, what are we going to do about it? What's our decision? We're going to take that breath and we're going to make a different decision? Or we're just going to keep living like animals? And by animal, I mean, you could be living like a prey animal. You might be living scared all the time. Just still living like an animal. Maybe you're living mad all the time. Well, that's still living like an animal. When all we can do is just react, 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 react to everything, and everything's an instinct, we're living like animals. But we're not animals. And we can consider what's going on around us. We can think about what's happening around us. We can take a breath, and we can reconsider, and we can think about what we know God has done in our life, what we know God has come through with on us, and we can make a different decision in our life. We don't have to persist in the instinctual reactions of our life. We can make different decisions. And I want to encourage you toward that tonight. So Heavenly Father, I pray that, uh, that we would make some different decisions tonight. I ask you that you'd bring to mind for us some things that you've done in our lives. Things that we can call upon when we're faced with different crises or we're faced with different challenging situations. I pray, God, that you would bring to mind some things where uh, miraculously uh, you provided, where miraculously you delivered, where miraculously you led and you directed, where miraculously you brought peace or miraculously you brought a wholeness or a healing into our life. Miraculously, God, you changed the weather when it needed to be changed, miraculously, you did whatever it is that you've done. I pray, God, that we will allow those things to be just a really conscious part of our daily lives so that we're reminded in the midst of anxiety that it's not a big deal for you. And I just pray, God, that uh, we'll find ourselves, that our faith would find a real voice in us to speak more loudly than our fear. I pray our faith would rise up in us and declare to us that there's always hope. Always. There's always an answer. There's always more. It's never too late. And that that faith and that hope will just be rising up in us, fed, fed through our relationship with you. I pray for people that are here that 
are living in a degree of anxiety, I pray deliverance in the name of Jesus. I pray, God, that you would break anxiety over people's minds and their hearts. People that are listening to this that are, are just being bound by anxiety, I speak freedom in the name of Jesus. Freedom. 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 You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to. Jesus is here. He's present. He's with you. He has all authority. He shares that authority with you. Jesus has shown His love over you so many times. God, I pray You'd bring Him to mind. Jesus has shown His provision over you so many times. God, I pray You'd bring Him to mind. Jesus has, has shown miraculous moving in your life so many times. I pray, God, You'd bring Him to mind. And I pray, God, for faith to rise up in your people. Faith. Faith. Faith, God, to rise up in your people. We don't have to live like that anymore. Don't have to do it. I pray we choose not to. Give you thanks tonight. Give you thanks. I pray for new beginnings. New beginnings all over this room. New beginnings. For those that are listening to this, new beginnings. Here and now. We ask you for it in Jesus' name. Let's agree by saying amen. Amen. UCF and Syracuse is a relational gathering of diversity in action. Economics, education, employment, background, and culture span the spectrum as we gather for the purpose of life in Christ. No, me and Christ are homies. That's good. He's really cool. You mm-hmm. know? He's super close, yo. Your homeboy? Yeah. All right. Anyways, so musicians, writers, painters. You know, my cousin's a painter. Yeah? What do you paint? Houses. Oh, man. My cousin, your cousin should hook up. Yeah. So, yeah, painters and other artists express their work through the body of life of this faith community. Like the community that. Yeah, so a lot of people. Yeah. No. Started in 1997. That's a long time ago, yo. That's back in the day. That was before I had my eyebrows tattooed on there. I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As an outgrowth of chaplaincy of Syracuse University, UCF continues to gather in the Westcott neighborhood of Syracuse. Oh, me and my homegirls, we walk up and down there all the time. I know, that's our hood. Mm-hmm. So it's in Syracuse, New York, to share the love and hope of Christ. Again, we, we homies. Yeah.